Good evening, everyone. How are you guys doing? Good. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your, your love and your grace, your enduring mercy that is new to us every morning, every day. And Father, we pray that, Lord, you would speak to us. And more, even more important, that we would listen. Because you always speak. You want to speak to us, but many times we, we're not in tune. We, we don't hear what it is you're telling us. Or maybe we don't want to hear what you're telling us. But God, if we're going to follow you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, um, we need to follow you in spirit and in truth. Father, help us to know what it is to live the crucified life. What it means to be holy, just as the women's studies here are about holiness. Again, a topic that's not real popular and isn't uh, spoken much about. God, help us not to just want to feel good and help us to to know that, that God is more concerned about our holiness than he is our happiness. And Father, may that truth ring loud tonight in our ears. And God, may we learn the difference of being saved from our sins and not in our sins. And so, Lord, may you have your way with us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're we're just really going to spend time tonight in verses 1 and 2. And again, there are those who... I have talked to who, because Jesus died for our sins, all of our sins think that they can go on sinning. Well, well, you know, Jesus died for our sins. He's paid the price. That is true. But he died to save us from our sins, not in our sins. How could a guy like Paul, a cold-blooded, wicked enemy of the faith one day be able to say I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry although I was formerly a blasphemer a persecutor and an insolent man but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief first Timothy 1 12 13 how could Paul have addressed the, the Corinthian Christians as those who are sanctified in Jesus Christ called to be saints, and then say to them, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, uh, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. How could Paul say these things? Well, Paul gives the answer right away. Reminding them there in this uh, last part of 1 Corinthians 6.11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now in these and similar important things, like them, that Paul deals with in chapters 6 and uh, through 8 of Romans, chapter 6 begins a new change in Paul's teaching about salvation. And the salvation, it's every day effect on those who are saved. 
an everyday effect. Not just on Wednesday and Thursday or Thursday and Sunday when we come to church or whatever day you might be coming to church. There is to be an everyday effect of the salvation that we have. After completely covering uh, different discussions about man's sin and his redemption through Christ, Paul now moves to the subject of the believer's holiness. And this is so important for us to, to, to grasp the holiness that we are to have, the holiness that we are to live. Holiness is the life of righteousness that God demands of his children and provides for his children. The life of obedience to his word lived by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And in this chapter, Paul talks about the problem of the Christian sanctification. This is because the chapter starts with a question that takes us back to what Paul had been saying in chapter 5. Now, what does sanctification mean? Well, uh, the definition from Westminster Confession of Faith says this. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Sanctification is what Christ does in us. It's God's work in the believer when he gives his righteousness and develops holy character and conduct in the believer. So let's look at chapter 6 now, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's saying, what shall we say then? Say about what? Well, what he just said in chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. So let's back up a couple of verses and look at chapter 5, verses 22 and 21. Because in verse 1 of 6, he's answering the question. Verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then verse 6, he asked the question, uh, six, chapter 6, one, what shall we say then about what he just said? You know, where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. In other words, where does the grace of God lead us? Well, it can go two ways. On one hand, it can lead us to more sinful behavior. Because if sin is, is, is going to be overcome by grace, then let's keep on sinning. Sin doesn't matter. On the other hand, the grace of God could lead to righteousness, which is the position that Paul actually takes and that he strongly supports. And in verses 1 and 2, we see that the very idea that Christians should continue in sin is unthinkable. Paul answers the, uh, Paul's answer to the question, notice, uh, is in verse 2. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, the, Paul's answer to the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, certainly not. Now, that is a very powerful saying. It literally means, let it not be. It also means it is inconceivable for it to be so, or it is unthinkable, or it should not even be considered in some translated, God forbid. So Paul strongly opposes the idea of, you know, continuing to live in sin that grace may abound the word continue it's the idea of habitual persistence and it was used sometimes of a person purposely living in a certain place and making it his permanent residence 
Paul wasn't talking about believers falling into sin in, in, once in a while because we all do. Because our flesh is weak and we're imperfect people. But he was talking about intentional, willful, ongoing sinning as an established way of life. Now, why is that unthinkable? Well, he's told us in verse 2. Because we have died to sin, so how? That's the next logical question. If we've died to sin, how then can we live any longer in it? And it's, it's foolish to think that we can for a lot of reasons. First of all, it disregards God's purpose in the plan of salvation that Paul has been explaining in the previous chapters of Romans. What is God's purpose? Is to save us, again, like I said, from our sins. In Matthew one twenty one, when Matthew was speaking about the birth of Christ, it says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's an important word. From their sins. A.W. Tozer says, God will save a man from his idols, but he will not save a man and his idols. Important to understand that. Now, does it mean to save us only from the punishment that, you know, that, that we are due because of our sin? Well, yeah, but that's not all of it. We are justified by God so that we might be saved from the wrath at the final judgment. But that's just one part of God's plan of salvation. Salvation is also saving us from the guilt of our sin. And, you know, some of the sins that people commit, you know, we can look at our past. Maybe we can do it to attest to it. You know, we carry guilt. We can carry guilt for years because of things that we've done or things that we've said to people. Because sin brings guilt. And one of the blessings of salvation is to be delivered from that guilt. Knowing that sin hasn't been overlooked or forget it hasn't just been overlooked or forgiven but man it's also been punished jesus was punished for my sin he took my guilt upon his body on that cross and still deliverance from the guilt of sin is also just a part of what is involved in salvation how about the deliverance from sin's presence and this will happen when we're glorified now each one of these things that we've just talked about they're important But the one thing that hasn't been mentioned yet is salvation from the practice of sin right now. And that's also clearly God's purpose in salvation. But not one part of our deliverance from sin can be rightly separated from any other. It all goes together. You know, he can't just deliver us from one part of sin and not another part of sin. So if we're continuing to practice sin right now, we're contradicting the very purpose of God In our salvation. A second reason for, again, uh, the foolishness of thinking that we can continue to live in sin. If you think because we're under grace that, you know, God doesn't care how we live, morally speaking, that the moral law, okay, doesn't matter or, or we're just not, you know, obligated to it because faith is all that I need to be saved is also silly because it ignores God's way for salvation, God's way of salvation for saving sinners. So justification, which is the act by which God declares a person to be in a right standing with him uh, before his justice due to the death of Jesus Christ. It's due. We're justified because of what Jesus Christ did that is died on the cross for us. But again, that's not all that's involved. God justifies, but Jesus Christ also redeems. 
God forgives. But the Holy Spirit also makes us spiritually alive, alive so that we can know and receive that forgiveness by faith. Now, in chapter 5, Paul was talking about the believer's relationship with Jesus Christ and what that relationship was like. It's not automatic. We don't have an automatic relationship with Christ. We don't have a legal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is, if I do this, this, and this, then I'm okay. Uh, I don't have an automatic relationship with Christ because I grew up in a Christian home or with a Christian family or I go to church or I serve or I give. It's not, that doesn't make me one of his. It's as simple as the relationship between a vine and its branches. They're connected. The branches can't live apart from the vine. Or between a head and the other parts of the body. The other parts of the body can't live without the head. So you see, here's the thing. If we're saved, we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, he is in us. And his life inside us will surely turn us from sin to righteousness. That, that's the, that, can o- that can be the only effect. That being true, our relationship with Christ being the only source of holiness cannot be the source of sin. Impossible. So if we can find it possible to continue in sin that grace may abound, we only prove by our actions that we're not really saved. It's as simple and as strong as that. Paul said we died to sin. And that being true, how can we live any longer in it? Thirdly, why is it, is it that we, you know, it's foolish that, to, to think we can live or continue in sin that grace may abound? It's ridiculous to think that we can t- continue to sin because if we think that way, we never understood God's grace from the get-go. We learn that God's grace is not weakened nor taken away because we sin. In other words, God doesn't stop being gracious to us because we fall into sin. But just because grace isn't weakened by sin doesn't mean that it's always defeated by it. It's just the opposite. Paul said grace increased all the more so that, as it says in Galatians 5.21, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's the purpose of grace? To allow us to, to continue in sin? Absolutely not. Certainly not. God forbid, Paul says, is to deliver us from the bondage and the control of sin to put us under the control of grace. If grace is ruling your life, then grace is giving you victory over your sin and Christians do sin. But you know what? We are not defeated by sin. We don't continue in it. So it's important that we understand the the difference and and we understand here the foolishness of the question, shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? And if you understand the purpose of grace, you'll understand that in order for grace to increase, sin has to decrease, not increase. The purpose of grace is to destroy and to defeat sin. So if a person goes on sinning, as Paul Paul's objection suggests it shows that they actually have no part in grace and are not saved. And there are serious warnings about this kind of thinking. 
For people, uh, for, for those who, who think they have a lot of knowledge about doctrine and think just because they do have a lot of knowledge about doctrine that their souls are safe, that they're saved, isn't necessarily true. Salvation is more than just knowledge. It's a whole new life, a whole new way of living. That's the evidence of salvation. It's an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. So unless you're turning from your sin and you're going on in righteousness as you follow after Christ, you're not saved. And it's, imp- and it's presumptuous to think that you are. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, you need to examine your life. Make sure that you're saved. The Bible warns in 2 Peter 1, 10 through 11, Brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. We also read in 2 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. And Paul said, examine yourselves as to whether or not you are in the faith. He says, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? He says, don't you know you're Christians? There's another warning to all Christians. Is your life my life? Is it so out of order that an unsaved person watching us might come to the conclusion that, hey, this is where salvation by grace leads the Christian to continue to sin? And if it does, man, we need to change our behavior immediately. Jesus said this in Luke 17, 1 and 2. He said this to his disciples. It is impossible that no offenses should come. But woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If we were to lead somebody to the wrong conclusion about what salvation is. That I can continue in sin. That I, can not, that I don't have to forsake sin or forsake the world that you know, is filled with sin. It's a sad thing, but at the same time, it's also true that that one person, one person who lives contrary to the gospel does more harm to Christianity than a lot of Christians living holy lives do it good. And, you know, people are looking for that one Christian, that one person who claims to be a Christian and their life is so out of order. That's what they like. That's what they want to base their base Christianity on. Doesn't matter how many good people, how many Christians are doing good. For Christ's sake, it's that one person who does more damage than a bunch of you know, good Christians living good lives. Jesus said, let your life so shine before men. That is, let your righteousness be seen for the good of your own soul as well as for others. Galatians five nineteen through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, notice that those who practice, there's the word, the key word, those who practice such things, notice, will not will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, wrong living excludes men from God's kingdom. 
it's so important that, that the church of Jesus Christ gets that. There is a way that we are to live. And in verse 1 here, Paul asked the question that they must have asked him so many times during his ministry. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? And again, his answer was a strong, certainly not. And then he clearly explained why. He said, we died to sin. So logically, how can we live any longer in it? So everything in chapter 6 is an explanation about that point. Being dead to sin, how can we live any longer in it? But he starts off by saying, notice, we died to sin. Now, what exactly does this mean? Now, we, an underliner, put your name there or put I there. We is an important word here. Because what it does, it brings attention to the fact of who you are. We're not like other people. We, the word we, we have a special position in Christ. We meaning what we are. We're not like other people. We're, we're God's you know, peculiar treasure. We're his special people. We have a special position. That's why the thought of living in sin is unthinkable. Remember when Joseph was being, you know, uh, um, uh, you know approached and, and seduced by Potiphar's wife. Remember what he said. He said, how can I, the emphasis on I, how can I do this wicked thing before my God? How can I, a man of God, a servant of the Most High, who holds us a, a, a key position in the kingdom of how can I do such a thing? We're not like other people. And then we need to look at the word died. The word died refers to a certain action that had taken place and had been completed in the past. In other words, it's not to be taken that we are dying to sin or that we have died and we're continuing to die to sin or we shall die to sin. The word died refers to a finished past action. And just by simple logic. You have to agree that the person who has died to one kind of life can't still live in it any longer. Now, if I have, some, you know, don't want to be morbid or, or you know, gruesome about it, but if, you know, I had a, a friend that died, you know, and I want to go do something, say, hey, come on, let's go do this. He can't live that life any longer because he's died. And if I have died to sin, how can I live any longer that kind of a life? Very simple logic. Paul wasn't talking about the present state of the believer as dying daily to sin, but the past act of being dead to sin. Paul is trying, uh, Paul is saying it's impossible for a Christian to stay, to practice, to live in an ongoing state of sinfulness. Because the act is in this, in, in this sense once and for all. By definition alone, a person doesn't keep on dying. If a person has died, his death is real and it's permanent. The person who has truly died to sin cannot possibly still live in sin. So in both spirit, the spiritual as well as the physical areas, death and life are incompatible. Both rationally and spiritually, that is why. 
Spiritual life cannot exist together with spiritual death. So the idea that a Christian can continue to live habitually in sin is not only unbiblical, it is absurd. Now, Christians can still commit a lot of the sins they did before they were saved. But you see, they're not able to live continually in those sins like they did before. And when you're truly born again, you, you may fall into a sin. You may do something that you used to do and, and it just it grieves you. And you, you just feel this guilt and this conviction and, and you just say, God, I'm sorry. And, and I can't I can't keep doing that. I can't continue in that. 1 John 3, 9 says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed, God's seed, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. When it says cannot sin, it's the fact that I can't do that anymore. I cannot do that. I can't live like that anymore. Why? Because he has a new nature in him, and that new nature cannot sin. That is, comfortably and, 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 and ongoing. John calls this new nature God's seed. When a person receives Jesus Christ, unbelievable spiritual ta- changes take place in his life. And it's not just that Christians shouldn't continue to live in the realm of sin, but they can't. And I mean, I look at my own life when I got saved. I mean, I I couldn't keep drinking. I couldn't keep doing the things that I used to do. I couldn't keep doing the drug thing. I couldn't just hang out with the people that I used to hang out with. We, We just didn't have anything in common anymore. I couldn't do that. I cannot do that. Paul doesn't beat around the bush here about the abundant grace of God. But the truth that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. It clearly focuses on and magnifies God's grace, not man's sin. It says not one single sin is too great for God to forgive and that even all the sins of all mankind from beginning to end, from all ages, past, present and future, are more than adequately covered by the infinite abundance of God's grace made effective in the atonement. Christ's death upon the cross. Justification and sanctification aren't separate stages in salvation. They're different parts of God's continual divine work of salvation in the believer's life. Where where God not only declares a person righteous, but he recreates him to uh, to become righteous. So what God declares that man righteous, he makes him righteous. And holiness is as much a work of God in the believer as any other part of salvation. Hebrews 12, 14 has a very important verse. It says, pursue peace with all people and holiness. Here it is, without which no one will see the Lord. Our salvation hinges upon holiness. Without it, nobody is going to see the Lord. And when a person is saved, God not only says he's righteous, which is justification, but also starts to develop Christ's righteousness in him, which is sanctification. Justification and sanctification start at the moment you're born again. 
So salvation isn't just a lawful contract that is, you know, I do this, this, and this, and, and I'm saved. But it results without a doubt in a miracle of transformation. Growing in the Christian life is always a process and it will not be perfected until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 But there's no such thing as a true convert in whom justification has been accomplished but in whom sanctification both doctrinally and in practice hasn't already started. They both begin at the same time. In other words, another fact that bears witnesses is the night that I got saved. When I called Xavier's brother, who had been asking me to go to the concerts at Costa Mesa for months, wouldn't go. But Romans chapter 7 was the passage that I read the night that I got saved. I never read the Bible, but Pastor Rawl had given me one. I decided to open up that night and read it. God just nailed me. I called Rawl and asked if he was still going. I said, he said, yeah. I said, can I go? He came and picked me up. But when that took place, I was getting ready to go out to a nightclub that we used to go to in Ballin Park. I was going to be with my friends. I was going to get high. I had the drugs in my pocket. They were in my pocket. I went to church. Had them in my pocket. Didn't bother me. I was sitting there as happy as could be. I was enjoying the music and all that was going on. And, and, and you know, heard the message. And, and I was probably the first one out of my seat at altar call. But the minute I said their sinner's prayer, all of us, I said, I got to get rid of this dope. Just that fast. You see, justification is when I receive Christ. Sanctification began at that moment as well. I got to get rid of this stuff. I cannot be in. I mean, that, only God could do that. As Xavier would know and my friend Joey here, all three of us, we've known each other for 50 years. And we hung out in the old days and... and we know each other real well and what we used to do and the things that we used to do. That was God. Because nobody could have pried that stuff out of my hand. Nobody. But justification and sanctification, man, it, 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 it all took place in an instant. God declared me righteous the minute I said, Lord, I want to receive you. And sanctification came in and said, man, I got to clean this. And I went outside, I found a trash can and I just dumped all those pills in that can. In other words, there's a there's never a separation between justification and sanctification. I cannot be declared righteous by God and then not have a holy life to match that righteousness. Without a doubt, there's always a total and permanent separation between the old self and the new self. Man, there's that that just it just got wider and wider. In Christ, the old self has been made dead. A corpse. By definition, a corpse doesn't have a trace of life in it. When Jesus was on the cross and he, he, he died, remember the Roman soldier went up there to make sure and, and pierced him. There was no response, there was no reaction by Jesus. He was dead. 
You see, when we're dead, there's no, there, there's no reaction to, this, to those things, those things I used to, I don't want them, I can't do them, I don't want to be around, because I'm dead to those things. They have nothing, they don't draw me anymore. Because I'm dead. You see, that's when we know we're dead, when we quit reacting to the sin that's, that, that once attracted us and to people when, you know, they provoke us. As long as I'm reacting, I'm not dead. I'm not dead. When Jesus was pierced, he didn't flinch. He didn't say, oh, what are you doing? Do you know who I am? Nothing. He was dead. And when we're dead, we don't react or respond to those things that we once did. So in Christ, the old self has been made dead. We're a corpse We don't have a trace of life left in it. The old man and the old self is the unsaved person. He's not part righteous and he's not part sinful. I mean, when I thought about that, I thought, that's that's religion. All I enjoy going to church and doing my thing and yet going out and living how I want. That's religion. I used to belong to a religion like that. Brought up in it. I go to confession on Sunday and get drunk as ever on Monday. But hey, I I thought I was a good guy. I thought I was going to heaven. But again, he's not part righteous and he's not part sinful, but totally sinful and without the slightest possibility within himself of ever becoming righteous or ever pleasing God. But the new man is the regenerate person and he's made pleasing to God through Jesus Christ and his new nature is totally godly and is totally righteous. He's not perfect. That doesn't mean he's perfect. He's not, and he's not glorified yet. But he's already spiritually alive and holiness is at work in him. And it's an ongoing thing. It was, as I said, it should be an effect in my life every day. And as I would go to work and, and, and I, you know, I still would had some of the old habits of, you know, of cussing and, you know, and I used to smoke and, and just those things, you know, you know, I, God started clearing those things up and nobody told me not to do those things. But sanctification was at work in my life. Why do you smoke? You don't enjoy. Okay, well, I won't do it anymore. Okay, that was the Holy Spirit. Never touch another cigarette. Why are you cussing? Well, I, I quit doing that. Nobody had to tell The Holy Spirit was sanctifying my life. And you see, the new man will keep growing in that holiness. No matter how slowly or how wavering. Because you see, the very nature of life is to grow. So there's no such thing as justification, that is righteousness, without sanctification, holiness. You can't have righteousness without holiness. You can't be saved without being holy. There's no such thing as divine life without divine living. The person who is truly saved uh, saved lives a, a new and godly life in a new and godly kingdom. Now and eternally. He lives in God's kingdom of grace and righteousness and can never live again in Satan's kingdom of self and sin. Just like the natural, sinful, unsaved man cannot control the way he lives, 
and he shows what he is by the way he lives, neither can the saved man. The man cannot help show that he's saved by the way that he lives. Jesus didn't just die for what we did, but he died for what we are. Paul says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3. 3. Paul makes it even clearer by saying in 2 Corinthians 5.17-18, through 18, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So the words died to sin gives us the whole the, the basic idea of this whole chapter which basically explains that the simple uh, that simple reality that the old self and the new self meant they're just opposite directions it's impossible to be alive in Christ and still be alive in sin it's not that a believer at at, at any moment uh, before going to be with Christ is totally without sin but the, from the moment he's born again, he's totally separated from the controlling power of sin, the practice of sin, the sin life that Christ died to deliver him from. He is separated from that. And it's important, as in closing now, it's important that, that we grasp this. How can we who have died live any longer in sin? Think of it, to, to claim to be born again or a Christian. To, be, to, to claim that I have been declared righteous and yet there's no holiness. That I'm still living in sin. Think of it, the sin, that sin is what killed Jesus Christ. How can I love and pursue and practice the very thing that caused Christ's death on the cross. How can I claim to know God and love God and yet live in sin, the very thing that killed the one that I claim to love? It just, it's incompatible. So we need to make sure Lord, you know, am I truly saved? Am I truly born again? And if not, make it right. Make him my Lord. Not just my Savior, my Lord. That means my master doing what he says I need to do. A lot of people want Jesus as Savior, but they don't want him as Lord. They want to go to heaven, but they want to live their own life here on earth. And yet here is where God is shaping us, molding us, so that we can fit in in heaven. And finish with this story. Billy Graham told a story about a friend of his that went through the depression and lost everything. And he was going by this building that was being built. And there were a bunch of masons out there, you know, building, uh, or, you know, molding the, 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 the 
stones and the, the bricks that were going into the building. And so the, Billy Graham's friend saw this, this one mason. He, was, he had this stone, and he was chiseling it, and he was shaping it, and he was molding it. And, and the man asked him, well, what are you doing? The mason told him, you see that steeple way up there at the top of the building? He says, I'm shaping this down here so it will fit up there. That's exactly what God is doing with us here. He's shaping us. He's molding us into his image. And that's the only way we're going to fit up there. Let's pray. Father, glorious God, awesome Savior, we thank you so much for your awesome word, God. Lord, with so much compromise today and liberal theology, God, Many don't want to tell it like it is. Don't want to stand upon the truth of God. And Father, help us to take your word to heart. To not not get mad at the message or the messenger, Lord. But to receive the message. As one dear saint said to the other in a church service. Is the pastor through with his sermon yet? She said. The pastor's through. With his sermon. But the sermon isn't over. We have to go out now and do it. God help us to be doers of your word not hearers only. Lord, help us not to sit down, give up, shut up, quit. But to stand up. To live for God. To pursue holiness. For without it, no man, no one, We'll see heaven. And if you're here tonight, man, and you don't know Jesus Christ, you've, you've never received him as Lord. For whatever reason, maybe you thought you had a contractual, contractual kind of relationship where, you know, I've done this, this, and this, and so that should be good enough or, um, you know, a legal relationship, however that might work but have never really just committed yourself to Christ or you're not sure. Maybe you thought all this time you were saved, but want to make sure before you leave here tonight that the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart and, and you see I have claimed or profess to be a believer, but my life does not possess the evidence to support what I say. Well, you can turn all that around this evening. As we're praying and your heads are bowed, if there's anybody that would want to 
make their call and election sure, as Peter said. Just raise your hand up right now. Just raise it up and then you can put it back down again. Anybody at all? Awesome. One, one hand. Anybody else? Anybody else? Not a time to be embarrassed. The time to know for sure that I'm right with God, that I'm going to do it right. I'm going to be right. Anybody at all? Anybody else? All right, I'm going to say this prayer out loud and the individual that raised their hand, you repeat this prayer to the Lord with all of your heart. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to walk with you all the days of my life. And thank you, Lord, for saving me. And Lord, help me now to begin the sanctification process as I've just been declared righteous and the two cannot be separated. May the evidence of the new birth be obvious. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, I would... Recommend seeing one of the ushers and getting a Bible if you don't already have one. And just uh, they'll share some. There's a gentleman right there. They'll share some information with you on, on what to do from this point on. God bless you guys.